All right. Second Samuel 14 in your Bibles. Title of the sermon, Remembering Mercy. It's been a few difficult messages for us of late. Considering the sin of Amnon, the sin of Absalom, the shame of Tamar through no fault of her own, the struggle over sin, wickedness, poor choices, bad fathering. It's been kind of a discouraging couple of weeks. And as we start this morning, or this evening, excuse me, I want to begin by making a correction of a point that I, I mentioned last week. Last week in regard to David's response to Amnon's sin, I mentioned that David did very little. If we recall, Amnon, of course, had raped Tamar, and we connected perhaps Absalom's resentment and anger that ended up being the death of Amnon with not just Amnon's sin, but with David, his father's failure to do anything about it. And as we were talking about this, I mentioned that the law demanded Amnon's death. And I looked into it a little bit more this week, and found that that was actually incorrect. In Deuteronomy 22, verse 25, death was required if the woman that was raped was betrothed. So if she was betrothed to another, and she was raped by a man, then that man was to die, because he had taken that which was not his own, and which would belong to another. If she was not betrothed, as it seems Tamar was not uh, betrothed, then the man was required to pay her father 50 shekels and marry her. And then on top of that, he would have no legal ability throughout the course of their life to divorce her. So divorce was a part of the Old Testament law. Uh, it was There were certain circumstances where a man could put away his wife. But if he raped her and met all of the qualifications for rape. He pays the father 50 shekels, he marries the woman, and then he is not, for the rest of their lives, allowed to put her away. This would have likely been the standard for Amnon, which almost makes it more egregious that David did nothing, doesn't it? The fact that David wouldn't have even had to have killed his son, he simply would have had to say, okay, son, you give me 50 shekels, you marry the woman, and you can't divorce her, and that, that's all it would have taken... That, that would have been the legal recourse under the law, and David didn't even do that. And it seems as though uh, that, that almost, in my mind, makes it a little more egregious that he was so negligent. Uh, but today it's time for us to be encouraged. It's been a sad couple of weeks. Let's encourage our hearts in the Lord this week. As you study the scriptures, you'll find that even in the worst manifestations of human sinfulness, God's mercy shines as a beacon of hope, a reminder of our position. And today we're going to join King David in being reminded of the blessings of God's mercy out of the mouth of a woman from a city not far from Jerusalem, not far from Bethlehem, a a place called Tekoa. Now, the point of this passage today is actually going to be somewhat set up. It's not actually intended to highlight God's mercy as such. And I would even perhaps disagree with some of the direction that David takes in this passage. But we are going to turn it around and look at mercy through it. And I believe it will encourage our hearts. So let's begin in the text. Second uh, Samuel 14, beginning in verse 1. The Bible tells us, Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was toward 
Absalom. Our text opens today with Joab recognizing David's heart. Remember last time we said that it had been the end of three years where Absalom had been in Geshur with uh, his grandfather who was um, Talmai, the king of Geshur. And uh, the sting of Amnon's death had subsided and David's heart was beginning to long for his son, Absalom. And Joab, he's the captain of David's host, he's the general of the army, and he desires to see David reconciled to his son. And as we consider this, uh, first and foremost, we remind ourselves of the relationships here. Remember, we've been talking about the relationships. Jonadab, that crafty man, is the cousin of Amnon and Absalom, and is the son of one of David's brothers. Joab is always called Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and Zeruiah, we know, is David's Sister, And so Joab is David's nephew. Joab is Absalom's cousin. Joab was Amnon's cousin. Joab is also Jonadab's cousin. So we have a whole bunch of family going on here, right? Uh, But Joab is David's nephew and Absalom's cousin. And as we consider this, you know, it's really a big family affair with love, loyalty, duty, all playing a role. Uh, But what it possibly means, more than all of these, is that David is is not going to be very interested necessarily in listening to Joab. This is an area where David might look at Joab and say, Okay, young one, uh, you can move on now. It's uh, kind of interesting how that happens. I was um, talking with one of my cousins online recently, and uh, it was over social media, and he and I were going back and forth debating a topic. And at a certain point in this debate that we were having, one of our uncles chimed in, and uh, as he began his little part in it, you could tell that he still saw us uh, about yay high, and kind of going back and forth, as, as perhaps we might have done at one time, and he, he perhaps kind of forgot that uh, we're, we're adults now, and, and we didn't need mediation in our, uh, in our debate. And, and so perhaps Joab thought, well, maybe, may, maybe uh, King David isn't going to look at Joab, the captain of the guard. He's going to look at Joab, the nephew. I don't, I don't know quite why it is that he felt as though he could not bring this to David himself. Um, but sometimes that does happen, doesn't it? Where you need a mediator. Maybe a child wants his parents to hear something, but it would be wholly inappropriate for the child to bring it up. And so the child prays and asks the Lord that that, uh, this flaw or this issue might uh, be able to be brought up by a pastor or a friend or a brother or whatever it might be. And this might be that issue here. Joab needs someone else to bring up this point. And so we read in verses 2 and 3, Joab sent to Tekoa... And fetch thence a wise woman and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner and put on now mourning apparel and anoint thyself with oil. But be as a woman that had a long time mourned for the dead and come to the king and speak in this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Joab employs what the Bible, King James here says, is a wise woman from Tekoa. Now, it's interesting that this word wise, you see wise woman. And if you write in your Bibles, this might be a good time to link it. That word wise there is the same word used of Jonadab in the last chapter. A word that does mean wise, but it can also mean subtle or crafty. And I believe it should probably be rightly understood in the same way that we would understand Jonadab. Uh, so we call it a wisdom, but we maybe call it a wisdom of the world. 
understanding how to manipulate people, understanding how to um, put on a face, understanding these things. Um, she's crafty. She's subtle. Jonadab is not hiring her or not asking her to do this because she has a great amount of spiritual wisdom and, and she can inform him. He's putting the words in her mouth. He just needs someone believable. He just needs someone crafty, subtle, someone that can, that can pull off this lie, this story, really well. Now, she's hired to back David into a bit of a corner to help him to see what, what Joab wants him to see. And she is a woman of Tekoa, the Bible says. Tekoa was a city of Judah within visual distance of Bethlehem, not too far from Jerusalem. We find that the Tekoites uh, come up several times in Scripture, never with too much uh, worth or consequence. One of David's mighty men was a Tekoite. The prophet Amos, if you remember, Amos was a herdsman, right? And he was a herdsman of Tekoa. And so Amos was from this city, um, one of David's mighty men was from the city. This woman is from this city. Why Joab chose her, we do not know. It may be that because she lived in such close proximity to where David grew up, Bethlehem, they were in visual distance of each other. She may have known him. They may have had regard for each other, something of that effect, but we just don't know. But what was requested of her was that she would pretend to be a woman who had been in mourning for a long time, presumably a widow, Mourning over her dead husband. We'll actually see it explicitly said a little bit later in the text. Mourning for a dead husband. Pretending to be this widow woman. And Joab gave her the exact words he wanted her to say. Enacting this plan in verse 4. Where we read this. And when the woman of Tekoa spake to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and did obeisance and said, Help, O king. So the woman comes to the king and she does what you would expect. She falls on the ground in submission. She asks for David's help. Uh, David was always what we might call a people's king. He was uh, one of the people. He had no um, qualms about lowering himself, if we could call it that, to the the level of the people. He did not entertain the kind of pride within himself that, that would exalt himself regularly above the people, not be seen by the people. Uh, we know that David's willingness was so much even that he, as he brought the, temp, the, the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, he took off his kingly garments and he put on the, 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 the simple garments of a priest. Uh, and that is at that time when Michael, his wife, despised him for it. And so he was always kind of a people's king. And we hear her story beginning in verse 5, and we'll read through verse 7. Uh, and the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, I am indeed a widow woman, and mine husband is dead. And thy handmaid had two sons, and they two strove together in the field, and there was none to part them. But the one smote the other, and slew him. And behold... The whole family is risen against thy handmaid, and they said, Deliver him that smote his brother, that we may kill him for the life of his brother whom he slew, and we will destroy the heir also. And so they shall quench my coal which is left, and shall not leave to my husband neither name nor remainder upon the earth. Uh, So the woman's scenario is interesting. Her husband is dead. She has two sons. The two sons get into a quarrel one day. They are fighting back and forth. And as they fight, the one son kills the other son. And now her other son, uh, her family wants that other son to be killed as the avenger of blood. They would kill him for his crime. And her request 
is that her son would be pardoned. And she makes this request upon, upon the line that if her other son would be killed, she would lose what she says to be the last coal, which is left, the last of her heritage, the last of her strength, the last of her light, the last of her heat, um, the last of what she has. And not only that, but she would also lose the name of her husband from Israel. And so we read in verse 8 and 9. The king said unto the woman, Go to thine house, and I will give charge concerning thee. And the woman of Tekoa said unto the king, My lord, O king, the iniquity be on me, and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. David confirms her request, telling her to return home. Uh, presumably, there's there's some debate about this as I was reading up on it a little bit. But I believe that means he had not yet made a decision, but that he would make a judgment and get back to her. Others say that he made he, that he effectively made the judgment. Yes, I'll give you what you want. Now you can go home. But I, I believe that he says, you "Go to your house, and then I will, and, and I'll give charge concerning thee. I'll think about it. I'll consider the circumstances." And then I will get back to you. And the reason why uh, perhaps it might have been something where he needed to delay and think about it a little bit. Because to pardon the son, uh, though theoretically within the authority of king to do, would have been a pretty big deal here. If the charge had been premeditated murder, according to Deuteronomy 19, the son would be required to die without question. But as the charge uh, would have been at worst a crime of passion in the heat of the moment, he would fall under the authority of the elders of a city of refuge for judgment. In other words, so if, if the crime is premeditated and the man flees to the, to the um, city of refuge, which there were six cities of refuge that murderers could flee to, where the avengers of blood could not touch him, could not kill him, According to Deuteronomy 19, if the murder had been premeditated, the elders of the city would say, there's no question here, he needs to die. They would deliver him out to the avengers of blood. The avengers of blood would kill him. But in the charge of manslaughter, accidental death, or in the charge of um, other types of murder or, or death, it would be up to the judges of the city effectively to have a trial and then to determine his guilt or innocence. Uh, as this is the case, David the head of the monarchy, it would have been within his purview to make this judgment himself and, if he so chose, to pardon the guilty. But in doing so, David would have to trust this woman that indeed this was the case. He would have to trust that this woman was telling the truth because if it had been something worse, if it had been uh, premeditated murder, if it had been malicious in intent, if it had been wicked Murder. If he had in the it simply and legitimately killed his brother in spite and in anger, then by David pardoning him, David would be assuming the blood of that dead man upon himself and his kingdom, as the judge who pardoned a guilty murderer. And of course, David certainly would not want that. So this woman. Ups the ante, if we could call it that. David is contemplating, should I do this, should I not? Do I trust this woman, do I not? If it is as she says it is, then it would probably be okay to, to pardon the son. But, if it's not quite as she says it is, I could be assuming the blood guilt upon my kingdom. So, what she does here is she solemnly transfers 
the guilt of the blood that would rest upon David if she were lying to herself. And not only does this legally do that uh, in the eyes of the Lord, this would have solemnly transferred the guilt, but it also shows that she's telling the truth, right? I mean, if, if she was. She's, she's lying about the whole scenario, which is why it doesn't really matter. But, but it, it would show that she was telling the truth because she's willing to assume the blood guiltiness upon her and upon her family. And so that should... Theoretically, and, and the intent, the design there is that it gives David more confidence to actually pardon this son. And, and it's a valid scriptural context when we think of transferring the guilt of blood or transferring the guilt. Uh, indeed, the very essence of our redemption is that very thing, is it not? That God transfers the guilt for our sin from us to His Son, Jesus Christ, so that His Son has made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so this, this has legal precedent. We see it used several times in Scripture. When the Jews are about ready to have Jesus hung on the cross, they tell the Roman government, His blood be on us and our generation, right? And the Jews specifically took the guilt of Jesus Christ's death upon themselves. Uh, we see it in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament. David several times acts in a way so that the blood is transferred with Saul. When Saul dies, Ishbosheth, when he dies, David says, Let it be known to all that the blood of this innocent man is not on David's hands or on the kingdom of David's hands. And, and so th- this is a, a precedent that we see in Scripture. The woman says she and her house would assume the guilt for her son, should there be any, and adds this level of confidence that David could use to pardon this son. So in verse 10 we read, And the king said, Whosoever saith aught unto thee, bring him to me, and he shall not touch thee anymore. So the king makes this positive statement that anyone who would accuse her son, who would seek to accuse her, should be brought to him and he would be told to desist. He would be told to back off. Look, don't pursue the son. Back off of him. But even this was not quite enough for the woman in the direction that she was trying to go. As she's led by Joab, she's trying to get David to say a particular thing. She's trying to put David in a particular spot so that the scenario of pardoning Absalom can come to pass. And and, and so she's not quite where she wants to be in order to satisfy what Joab has asked of her. She doesn't want just a statement, she wants a vow. And so we continue in verse 11. Then said she, I pray thee, let the king remember the Lord thy God, that thou wouldst not suffer the revengers of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And here it is. And he said, as the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of thy son fall to the earth. So now she says, look, I want more than that king. Would you just... Let the king remember the Lord thy God and not suffer the revengers of blood to destroy. Would you just give me the promise that my son won't die? He says yes. And he vows unto the Lord, as the Lord liveth, literally swearing by the name of God, your son will not die for this crime, for this, for this action. She gets the vow. Now it's time to draw the parallel and confront the king. Verse 12 and 13. Then the woman said, Let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak one word unto my lord the king. Can I just say something now, king? And he said, Say on. And the woman said, Wherefore then hast thou such a thing against the people of God? For the king doth speak this thing as one which is faulty. 
and that the king doth not fetch home again his banished. The woman argues that David is operating under an inconsistency. King, you pardoned my son, one you don't even know, for a private affair where one son killed the other son over a disagreement. But you won't pardon the son of the king who is now heir apparent to the throne. She argues that David is withholding from the entire nation the privilege of Absalom's security, of his ability to come back and be a part of the nation. Even more, she implies that David is willing to treat the very lowest in the kingdom better than he's willing to treat his own son. Now the analogy is clear. Sons fought, one died, the other one ran. Pardon him, David says, okay, I'll do that. But I think that there's a, there's a flaw here as well, right? Because she's talking about two sons that argued, and in the heat of the battle, someone died. In the heat of the argument. Amnon had been planning to murder his brother for two years. That's premeditation. That's Deuteronomy 19. That's instant death. That's Amnon, Absalom. Absalom had been planning to kill Amnon. I don't know if that's what I said. I, I keep second-guessing whether I get their names right. But the crafty woman draws the parallel to this situation into David. I think it's a flawed parallel. But then she goes one step farther. And she draws a parallel between this situation and God's dealings with man. And again, while I question the parallel, the woman's insight into the working of God is very interesting. And actually, that's where we're going to park once we're finished expositing the passage. She says this in verse 14. She says to the king, For we must needs die and are as water spilt on the ground which cannot be gathered up again, neither doth God respect any person. Yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. We're all going to die, and once it's over, it's over, king. Furthermore, God doesn't respect persons. We are truly a sinful lot, unworthy of regard, unworthy of mercy. But even so, God devises a means that those that are separated from him would not be forever expelled from him. It's beautiful insight. And makes for a truly joyful meditation, and that's what we're going to meditate on. We'll come back to it in a little bit. But she's seeking to convince David that it was her circumstances that were yet the priority, but, but she just saw the opportunity to draw the parallel. And notice what she says in verse 15. She says, Now therefore I am come to speak of this thing unto the Lord and the King. It is because the people have made me afraid, and thy handmaid said, I will now speak unto the King... It may be that the king will perform this request of his handmaid. For the king will hear to deliver his handmaid out of the hand of the man that would destroy me and my son together out of the inheritance of God. Continuing. Uh, then thy handmaid said, The word of my lord, the king, shall now be comfortable. For as an angel of God, so is my Lord the King to discern good and bad. Therefore, the Lord thy God will be with thee. The woman implies that David understands what is best. She says, well, I came to get justice for me and my son, but I thought that since I'm here, and the parallel is quite clear, I'll just mention this and just see what you'll do. I know that you're a wise man. I know that you're a wise king, that you're kind, that you are all these things. And I, I knew that you'd hear me. And I have confidence that you will deliver my son, and I also have confidence that you'll be able to discern whether or not you should bring your son back. So she's trying to make sure that her 
bases are covered here with this little plot, but David has already seen through it. And we see that in verse 18. Then the king answered and said unto the woman, Hide not from me, I pray thee, the thing that I shall ask thee. And the woman said, Let my lord the king now speak. So they've gone back and forth, right? She comes and she says, I want justice for my son. David says, You may have it. She says, Can I say just one more thing? David says, What? She says, How about you bring your son back? And David says, Okay, it's my turn. Can I say one thing? She says, Of course. And the king said, verse 19, Is not the hand of Joab with thee in all these, all this? And the woman answered and said, As thy soul liveth, my lord the king, none can turn to the right hand or to the left from aught that my lord the king hath spoken. For thy servant Joab, he bade me, and he put all these words in the mouth of thine handmaid. Continuing in verse 20. To fetch about this form of speech hath thy servant Joab done this thing. And my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of an angel of God, to know all things that are in the earth. David recognizes Joab's hands all over this. They've known each other for a long time. The woman admits it. She says, yeah, you're a wise man. You're, you're indeed a man of discernment. She admits the whole thing was fabricated by Joab to make a point. And here we end our exposition. We'll find out all of what David says uh, in our next next uh, w- next week uh, in regard to this and what he's going to do from this point on. But we have the privilege of returning this evening to this thought of both joy and comfort. Rooted in the words of this crafty woman in verse 14, the woman's statement is almost startling in its simplicity and in its insight. She calls upon David to consider the attitude with which he is approaching the situation with his son Absalom. Is he doing what is necessary to bring about justice or is he hiding behind justice to avoid extending mercy? Last time we were in Second Samuel, we spoke of the pride of a man who refuses to forgive others when the very God of the universe would not withhold forgiveness from him. And today we see this woman use a similar argument in regard to mercy, which overshadows God's dealings with man. And so I'd like us to walk through verse 14. This will be my last slide this evening. I'm going to kind of do this one a little bit um, impromptu. I wrote and I had several slides after this and I just was not satisfied with where it was going. So I'd like to take this one and run with it a little bit on my own this evening as we consider this verse. Within the context of this woman's statement, we can think of the immediate. And in the immediate, she says, God doth devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. From Adam and Eve all the way to today, we have always seen that God has created a means of atonement. Adam and Eve fell to sin. They fell away, and yet God made for them clothes. And of course, that was with the death of an animal. And then we immediately begin seeing the sacrifices that that kick in with Cain and Abel. And Abel brings the sacrifice of blood. Cain brings a sacrifice of 
of the fruit of the ground, the vegetables. God does not have respect unto Cain's offering. He has respect unto Abel's offering because Abel's was blood. And we know that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And then we see it uh, all throughout. We see it in Job. We see it in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that, that God is expecting sacrifice, animal sacrifices, as, a to- as an atonement, a covering for sin. Then we get into the law. And of course, we see the day of atonement. We see the scapegoat uh, and uh, we, the, the sins of the, the nation go on the scapegoat and he's released. We see the sacrifices, the daily sacrifices, the trespass offerings, the free will offerings. All of this rooted in this concept of God not expelling from him those who have been banished. But notice the condition that the woman lays out. When she seeks to describe just how bad off we are and how God reacts to us, she first says, For we must needs die, and are as water spilt on the ground. And immediately as she says this, I think of James. He says, What is our life? It is but a vapor, which appeareth for a moment, and then vanisheth away. And then I think of Moses, where he's writing in Psalm 90, and we see it in the New Testament, and, and we consider... Moses saying, our, the years of our life are three score, three score and ten. And then we go away. And he says, so teach us, Lord, to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Indeed, we are a temporary lot, aren't we? We're here. We're gone. As we look at the scope of history, we're little more than a blip on the radar. Even those that are famous, even those that have left their mark, they left their mark, but they didn't get to live any longer because they left their mark. Maybe their ideas persist, but they do not. We're here, then we're gone. We're a a, a memory, if there's anyone around even to remember us. We are so temporary. We are so... We are, we are, we are so negligible in the grand scheme of things. We're as water spilt on the ground. What happens when water spills on the ground? It spreads and then it evaporates. You don't see it for very long. Can't be gathered up again. Once it's out, it's done. Once you're dead, you don't come back. That's the condition of man. We're temporary. We're excessively mortal. There's always something to bring us back to that, isn't there? You read of young children with diseases, kids that die, whether it's accidents, whether it's illness, and you say, wow, life is fragile. And then she says, neither does God have respect of persons. Not only are we mortal, but in these mortal years we're quite sinful, aren't we? Not only are we a mortal lot, but we are a rebellious lot. We don't have a lot to commend us, do we? I kind of think of... This might be a bad analogy. But I kind of think of chihuahuas when I think of, of, of humanity... You know, when you look at the the range of dogs, 
And you say, wow, there's a retriever. They've got a purpose. They've got a use. Wow, there's a German shepherd. They're, they're a pretty useful thing. And then you, you see some of these small ones. You know, there's a Sheltie. Maybe not good for a whole lot, but at least it's a good looking dog. And then you hit the Chihuahua. And it's ugly. And it's useless. And it just doesn't commend itself in any way. And as I think of a holy, almighty God looking down upon us, there's not a lot that commends us, is there? We're frail, we're weak, we're fickle, we're rebellious, we're selfish. And yet, though He respects no person, though we are all of this, though we don't have a great deal of intrinsic worth in that we are this lot of mortal, rebellious, broken people. God has made us in His image. And He loves us. And He has given us that dignity of His image. And even though we have... been banished from Him through our sin. And even though we are so far away from Him, yet He has devised means that His banished would not be expelled from Him. This morning we considered the Gospel. Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Hundreds saw him alive. It's no it's 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 no con game. He is alive. And for all of that that is amazing and miraculous and incredible, what that is, above all else, is God's devised means by which his banished are not expelled from him. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But there is remission of sins. Because the perfect Lamb of God, His blood, was shed. And so, this woman gives this analogy. We're a temporary lot. We're a fickle lot. God doesn't respect persons. Judgment. He must be just, right? God must be just. He's, he, he has to be. He is no respecter of persons. Sin is sin is sin is sin. And yet, even in the midst of the most just being, God Himself, the very definition of justice, even the very definition of justice devised a way of mercy. And that's the point. Maybe David... was getting a little bit worked up about this justice thing to the point that he had forgotten about mercy altogether. And we can have a tendency to be that way, can't we? To look at the world around us, to look at people, to look at events and want justice. Last week as we talked about forgiveness, we mentioned that we are quite prone to want justice for others but grace for ourselves. We're quite prone to want to see others get the book thrown at them, but have all of the reasons why we should never have the book thrown at us. 
And this idea is an extension of that concept. We think of all that God has done for us. God is a God of justice. But do you know what God did? What God did is He said this, I am a God of perfect justice. Those temporary, fickle, wicked, rebellious humans deserve to die and burn in hell for eternity. What can I do to find them mercy? How can I possibly, in what way, in any way, find them mercy while still satisfying justice? And so he went down the list, and obviously I'm, I'm, uh, I'm giving a little bit of sanctified imagination here. God didn't go down a list. He knew what he was going to do, right? But he goes down the list, and he says, okay, uh, uh, we could do this, uh, we could do sacrifices, but they're just temporary. That's not really going to uh, settle it. We, but we need the shedding of blood. Well, uh, one person can't give their blood for another because they, they're guilty themselves. They carry their own blood guilt. You can't have somebody pay for the blood guilt of another when he owes blood guilt on himself. If he dies, he's only paying for himself. He, he's not paying for anyone else. So we need someone perfect. Well, there's only one perfect. My son is perfect. But that's quite a price to pay. Is mercy so important to me? I, I must have justice. But is mercy so important to me that I would allow my only begotten son who is perfect and who has never done anything wrong to bear the sin of those who had so that my justice can be fulfilled while at the same time extending mercy to those that don't deserve it? Do you see how important mercy is to our Lord? That though he is a man, a, a God, he's not a man, Jesus is a man, but, but God is no man. Though he is a person of such tremendous justice, so that nothing can fall to the ground. He is no respecter of person. Every transgression must and will be accounted for. There, there, he doesn't miss a zero when he's accounting for it. Everything gets hit. And though that is the case, he said, how can I bring them mercy? And he went so far out of his way to allow his only begotten son to die to bring mercy. And the woman saying, look, if God will go so far out of his way to bring mercy to his people. Do you have any mercy left for your son? And as we close today, I would just ask that same question. People deserve justice, don't they? I mean, we all deserve justice. And the Christian in us wants to see that because we know the wrongs and we hate sin and we are angry for God's sake against sin. God is angry against sin every day. And we have that righteous indignation against sin, as we should. But you know what? All of the sin that happens around in this age of grace every day, as we look at the sin in the news, if you can even stomach to read or watch the news, God has seen fit to overshadow this age with the mercy of His Son, Jesus Christ. 
every single person committing every single crime out there in the world right now, doing wrongs, wronging others, wronging themselves, wronging their family, is under the blood of Christ, is not under the blood of Christ, has been, Jesus Christ has died for them, not all are, certainly not all are under that blood. But Jesus Christ's blood was shed for them, for their sins. And if God could go so far out of his way to extend mercy, whether they accept it or not, to extend that mercy, what can we do? How can we show mercy? Can we go out of our way any more than we have already to extend mercy? Those that have offended us, wronged us, wronged others that we would want justice for, and indeed... They deserve it, but don't we all? Now, there are times certainly where God's mercy gives way to His justice, doesn't He? In the lives of others. And then there's coming a day when His mercy will be filled to capacity and it will overflow into absolute judgment. Complete justice. But may I just encourage us this evening with a reminder of God's mercy. And how far out of His way God went to secure mercy. And as I say that, I would just encourage you to, when you think of the de- your dealings with others, sometimes mercy cannot be had. There are some people that are just beyond mercy. They need to, they, you need to stop the mercy in love to them, perhaps. But may I encourage you to make, always make mercy your first stop. To always make mer- mercy your first choice, because it was God's first choice. There are billions in this world who will not receive that mercy. But it's not because God didn't try. That was God's first choice. And by God's grace, let's make mercy our first choice as well. For we must needs die, and are as water spilt on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person, yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. Let's pray.